You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Beginning in verse 1, the Holy Spirit writes through King Solomon, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given over to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that's done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. And were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God let's pray father thank you so much for this your word this morning God I pray as we do each and every Sunday not out of routine but out of God desperation out of a recognition that unless you empower your word, Lord, anything that I say from here on out will be pointless. It'll fall on deaf ears. But God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would till the soil of our hearts even now. Soften us up. Prepare us to receive the seed of your word. Take it and plant it. And once you plant it, water it. And once you water it, cause it to grow. And once it grows, cause it to bear fruit in our lives. God, it is your ultimate goal to make your people more like Christ. And one of the main ways that you do that is through using your word to convict us of sin. Using your word to call us to renewed faith in Christ. And using your word to grow us in wisdom that we might walk in the way of the Lord Jesus. So God, now, as we move from simply reading and hearing 
to explaining and applying this text. We can only ask for your help to do that well, faithfully, and with life-transforming power. We ask all of these things in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want to know how to do something, chances are that someone somewhere has made a YouTube video that will show you exactly how to do that thing. Whatever that thing is. Now, confession time. How many of you have gone to YouTube to watch a video to show you how to do something or another? Yes, right? That is a treasure trove of information. Well, wouldn't it be nice if there were shortcuts like that for all of the complexities that we encounter in life? Well, there aren't. (laughs) And maybe just maybe that's part of the point. You see, what if God intends the complexities of life to compel us to trust Him and to lean on him, and to learn from him. What if if wisdom is less about discovering all of the answers to all of our questions, and all of the solutions to all of the complexities, and more about coming face to face with the God who himself is the answer to all of our questions? What if wisdom were more about looking to the God who will ultimately bring resolution to all of life's complexities? This is where Solomon goes in the text in front of us. If you'll remember, we we hit a pivot point about halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon walked out of the temple or in our day of time, he walked out the front doors of the church and he basically said, look, If you're going to make it in the real world, if you're going to make it through this world of mist and mystery, if you're going to live life under the sun in a way that pleases God, you're going to do that by the fear of the Lord. In other words, you're going to do that by faith. And so for the remainder of the book, he's giving us glimpses or snapshots of what the life of faith looks like. And this particular passage is no different. He wants to show us how wisdom transforms us, how it helps us encounter the complexities of life with a new perspective, and how with that new perspective, God trains us to walk through life by faith. So let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 essentially shows us that wisdom changes people. Look at what he says. He says, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Now, this is essentially a proverb. We know that Solomon, who wrote most of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, was famous for these kind of little pithy sayings about life. And this one is a recognition and a celebration of the real difference that wisdom can make in the life of a person who learns it. It's also a reminder that the wise person is a rare jewel, which 
Solomon has already told us in the preceding verses. If you go back to the end of chapter 7, he basically says that he could find but only one wise person among all of the human beings that he examined. So Solomon's saying here essentially this. The truly wise person is the person who stands out. What does he say? But who is like the wise? And it's not so much because of what the wise know, although Solomon did know a great deal about a great many things, and more importantly, he knew a great deal about how life in the real world works. After all, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is essentially all about. What the wise have in spades is ultimately not a bunch of knowledge, but perspective on how life works and how it's to be lived. Notice what Solomon goes on to say in this passage. He says, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. You see, according to Solomon, the wise are radiant people. They shine like the sun. Now, what does this mean in the context of the whole of Scripture, but that the gospel and God's word gives the wise a new way, a redeemed way of seeing and living life under the sun? Now, if you've been with us for the majority of this series, you know that that means, or rather it does not mean that the wise don't witness hard things. Nor does it mean that the wise don't go through hard things. Here's what Solomon's saying though. The wise ultimately are not hardened by hard things. The wise aren't hardened by hard things. Look at what he says. He says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is what? Changed. Now, this isn't to say that the wise have never wrestled with difficulty, nor is it to say that they've never experienced difficulty. Look, Solomon's wrestling with all of these things throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and None of this is to minimize the pain or the difficulty of those hard things. Solomon is just telling us that wisdom has taught the wise a different perspective on those hard things. It means that wisdom has enabled them to interpret those hard things through a different lens. More than that, wisdom, according to Solomon, actually changes people. difficulty will not necessarily make you better. It can make you bitter. It can harden you. It can cause you to become a cynical individual. It can cause you to become uncaring. It can cause you to resent God rather than revere God. Which as we talked about last week, is ultimately all about the fear of God. Now, this often happens. This this resentment toward God, it often happens 
when you and I make one of two assumptions regarding the hard things we face in life. On the one hand, some people make the assumption, I don't deserve this. How could this possibly be happening to me? On the other hand, some people make the assumption, I do deserve this. I know exactly why this is happening to me. God must be punishing me. Now, these are street-level interpretations of reality. And they're very natural, okay? As we've talked about before, you and I as human beings aren't just information absorbers. We are information interpreters. We are information processors. We are wired to make sense of reality because there is a reality to be made sense of. In other words, nothing is random. There is an ultimate reality governing everything that you and I see, say, do, experience, and otherwise in this world. There is someone in the control tower, and that someone is not only in charge of the flow of history, but that someone is in charge of every single detail of our lives. The problem is, and this is a problem that's come up several times in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun where you and I sit and from the vantage point we have, who knows the interpretation of a thing? That's exactly what Solomon says. Who among us knows exactly why this thing or that thing happened to us or to anyone else. John Piper's famous for saying, and I've mentioned this quote before, whatever it is that God may be doing in your life, chances are that at any given moment, he's doing 10,000 different things, and you may only know about one or two of them. You see, on the one hand, hard things happen to everyone in this world of mist and mystery, to believer and unbeliever alike. Friends, that's simply put what it means to live in a fallen world under the curse of sin, a world that is awash in the wake of sin and all of its effects. And it is wise to accept this. You are not immune to hardship. I'm not immune to hardship. On the other hand, sin does have consequences. And sometimes the things that we face are a direct result of the things that we've done. <clears throat> Chances are every one of us in the room has experienced that. We've all experienced hardship as a result of choices we've made. Wisdom also accepts this. Regardless, it is so easy to get lost in the why questions. 
Is it not? It's so easy. And like I said, those are natural questions. But you see, those questions assume something. Those questions assume that what you and I need most is answers. Those questions assume that you and I would be okay if we could just put two and two together. A few years ago, <clears throat> I, um, I had the opportunity to meet with a wise missionary who had served, gosh, probably 30 plus years in different contexts around the world. And he had lost his wife after a grueling battle with cancer. And this wise man said something to me as we sat across from one another at lunch that I will never forget. He said, Mike, I used to think that wisdom consisted in having all of the answers to all of the questions. But the older I get, the more I realize that wisdom is the ability to live with the questions even if the answers never come. At the time, this struck me as um, incredibly profound. And I think it speaks to something that Solomon's getting at throughout Ecclesiastes, but here in particular in this portion of Ecclesiastes. You see, wisdom. Wisdom is okay. I mean, I mean, really okay. I mean, peacefully okay. I mean, joyfully okay with not having all the answers to all the questions. Because wisdom ultimately isn't about getting a leg up on life under the sun as if you and I with answers in hand to all of our questions could somehow arrive at the point where we could confidently say that we've mastered life. By the way, <clears throat> realize, realize that this is precisely what Adam and Eve were after in the garden. The mastery of life. When they chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, <clears throat> they chose answers instead of God. They chose the opportunity to choose for themselves what was good and what was bad rather than deferring to God in faith and submitting themselves to God so that God might teach them what was good and what was bad. In other words, they weren't after God anymore. They were after answers. Wisdom, on the other hand, is joyfully content with striving to be faithful, to put into practice, into the midst, in the midst of the strain and the stress, the mist and the mystery of everyday life, the things that God has clearly revealed in his word, recognizing that there's more than enough for a lifetime right here without me looking for answers to questions that God has determined that he will not give me. Life is challenging enough 
the scriptures contain enough for me to put into practice in my everyday life without trying to figure out what God has not chosen to reveal. I think that's part of what Solomon means when he says that a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. What happens when you realize and you come to rest in the fact that God's got this and you don't have to? Man, that's a weight off your shoulders. That's a huge weight off your shoulders. That's the kind of weight off your shoulders that somebody comes up to you and notices and goes, you look different. Right? Now, this isn't resignation in the face of blind fate, okay? This isn't simply throwing up our hands and proclaiming to the universe what will be, what will be. This is the realization of genuine faith born of the fear of God. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, importing our conversation on the fear of God from last week, we can essentially say this. Wisdom is happily okay not being in control because wisdom knows that God is and that God can be thoroughly trusted not only to accomplish his will, but to accomplish his will in such a way that you and I ultimately as his kids benefit from it. When we have answers, we feel like we have a better handle on things, don't we? I do. When all we have are questions, we feel like we have much less control over a situation. Right? Wisdom, which is born of the fear of God, is slowly able to relinquish control to the Father. Because wisdom born of the fear of God knows with trembling delight that this God is good and great and glorious and gracious. Let me ask you a question. Do you have control issues? <laughs> Thank you for that admission, Liv. I think most of us have control issues. Does trying to control everything cause you more or less stress? You and I both know the answer to that question. Does trying to control everything cause you more or less anxiety? 
Does trying to control everything enable you to sleep better or does it leave you wishing you could sleep? Does trying to control everything cause you to be more confident in your abilities or does it leave you feeling more like everything is out of control? That's one of the ironies of trying to maintain control, right? The more you and I try to hold on to things, the less we actually end up holding on to things. Does trying to control everything cause you to harden up or loosen up? You see, Solomon, Solomon in verse 1 of chapter 8 is inviting you and I to embrace the fear of the Lord and to learn the way of wisdom from Christ the King, and to begin to experience real freedom in Him as a result. Now, here's where we're going to go, okay? We're going to discover that wisdom won't necessarily change your circumstances, nor will it solve all the complexities of life, but surrendering control to Christ actually changes you in the midst of those things. And that's the point. God is after more than simply altering our circumstances to bring those circumstances in line with a prior sense of comfort that we bring to those circumstances. God's more interested in making you into a new person in the midst of the complexities of life. And that's really where Solomon goes in verses 2 through 11. You see, wisdom changes you, but it doesn't, necessarily it doesn't necessarily eliminate life's complexities. Look at verse 2. He says, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So here's the point of verses 2 through 11. Wisdom isn't an escape hatch. The world we live in is complex. Wisdom doesn't necessarily change this, but wisdom born of the fear of God changes us so that we can better navigate the complexity. So, in verses 2 through 6, Solomon offers up this illustration. Now, in the ancient Near East, kings had absolute authority. They could command anyone to do anything they wanted and expect anyone commanded to do whatever they were commanded to do on penalty sometimes of life or death. Solomon's essentially saying that someone in authority may ask you to do something. And there may well be consequences should you choose not to do it. But what if you shouldn't do it? What if it would be wrong to do it? That's what he's essentially saying. 
He says, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to, hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. In other words, the king may ask you to do something, but someone who fears the Lord may understand that what they've been asked to do would ensnare them in an evil cause. You see the complexity? Because not obeying the king's command in that context could cost you your life. Sometimes fearing God is more important than fearing consequences. It's part of what Solomon wants to teach us. But then look at verse 7. He goes on to say for... Back up to verse 6. He says, For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Right there is essentially saying that no matter what kind of situation we find ourselves in, no matter what kind of authority is over us, and no matter what that person asks of us, there will be a way according to wisdom to navigate it in a God-honoring way. It may be costly to us. There may be consequences that come from it. But you and I are never in a position that we cannot choose the godly option. In verse 7, Solomon writes, For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? So here, <clears throat> Solomon is saying, You might be under someone's authority, and you might do everything in your power possible to please that individual, but you can't control how people will respond to you even when you do the right thing. But you can become a person who always acts with integrity. In verse 8, he deals again with the problem of death. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who were given over to it. One of those complexities of life again. You and I cannot win the battle against death. It will come for you, it will come for me, and it will take us. However, wisdom would say you can be prepared for it. You can be prepared for it when it comes. You can place your hand in the hand of the man who defeated death once and for all. Verse 9. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that's done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. What's Solomon saying here? You can, you can live... To have all of the good things said about you at your funeral. But this often amounts to a life of simply keeping up appearances. 
Ultimately, the wise know that this kind of praise will pass. It's vanity, it's vapor, it's smoke. You can live for that kind of praise, or you can live to hear the words of Jesus at the close of your earthly life. In Matthew 25, 23, we read these words. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Solomon goes on in verse 11 to say, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Again, facing up to one of these complexities of life, Solomon acknowledges, right, that you may be able to get away with something for a time, and many people do, but that doesn't mean that you'll be able to get off scot-free. Wisdom knows this. Foolishness disregards this. Now, I want you to hear me. Convincing the human heart to disregard future consequences is one of Satan's specialties. One author writes, Temptation only works if the possible futures open to you are concealed. In front of you. And I want to invite you to turn in that copy of God's Word to chapter 8 with us. If you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take that one with you. Turn to chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you'll find not getting caught. What does your mind and your heart begin to assume? I'll never be caught. There are no consequences. Remember what God told Adam and Eve prior to their fatal fall? If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will what? Future consequence associated with succumbing to present temptation. Remember what the serpent told Eve immediately prior to her taking the fruit and tasting the fruit. You will not surely die. You see, often, you and I are led from one temptation to another precisely because we've never been caught. And this fuels the illusion that we never will be caught. And that's exactly how Satan would have us make our way through life. But wisdom, wisdom born of the fear of God, knows that God sees and that God will ultimately call all things into account. The complexities of life under the sun, 
They may not be resolved right here, right now, but one day they will be. And that's exactly where Solomon goes at the close of this passage. Look at verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Do you see the flow of the passage? Wisdom changes you. It might not eliminate the complexities of life, but according to verses 12 and 13, it does train you to trust God in the midst of them. You see, over and over again, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has told us about all of the things that he has seen. He uses the phrase in verse 9, all this I observed. Then again in verse 10, then I saw. The vast majority of the things that Solomon has observed and catalogs in the book of Ecclesiastes are a litany of the consequences of living in a world groaning under the curse of sin. So how then would Solomon have you and I to proceed in light of these complexities? The answer is simple. By faith. By faith. Did you realize that verses 12 and 13 are statements of faith? They're not statements of observation. They're statements of faith. They're in fact contrary to experience. Look at what he says. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. And it will not be well with the wicked. So contrary to the things that Solomon has seen, Solomon believes, better yet, Solomon is convinced that there is a great reversal coming. He knows that though the wicked look to be prospering now, it will not always be so. You see, ultimately, as he says, Solomon believes that it will go well with those who fear God, who place their hope in God, who tremble with delight before everything that God is and everything that God has done to save sinners. See, right here, in these two verses, Solomon shows us how the person of faith, how the person who fears God faces up to the complexities of life under the sun. This entire chapter, really, is an illustration of Hebrews 11.1. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
Now, what is faith according to the writer of Hebrews? Well, first and foremost, faith born of the fear of God is not a blind leap. Sometimes people assume that Christians believe things that are way too fanciful for any rational person to assume to be true. But when you and I say that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that we believe Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that he will one day return from on high to gather unto himself his people and to judge the living and the dead, we aren't speaking in wishful thinking terms. This faith we possess is not a blind leap in the dark. The writer of Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Friends, our faith is grounded in history. Our faith is grounded upon the biblical testimony which stands up under scrutiny that Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross and three days later physically rose from the dead. Our faith is grounded in revelation. Our faith is grounded in the very words of God to us. You see, God's words to us help us to understand who we are, what's wrong with us, and where all of this is headed. In other words, these words help us to make sense of reality. I don't know about you, but that's one of the reasons that I love the book of Ecclesiastes so much is because it helps me to make sense of the mess. And oh, what a gift from God that is. By the way, every single, every single underlying understanding of the world and the way that the world works, which some people call a worldview, has to answer four questions, which the Bible answers in spades. Who are we? Or what is a human being? What's wrong with us? What's the solution to the problem? And where is all of this headed? Every single philosophy, every single religion will offer answers to those four questions. Even science will attempt to offer answers to all four of those questions. Who are we? What's wrong with us? What's the solution? Where's this headed? The Bible answers those questions in spades. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for. In other words, faith not only looks backward to what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the fact that he rose from the dead, faith also looks where? 
forward. Faith looks forward. It's confident in all that God has promised, in all that will find fulfillment in Jesus. When? At the return of Christ. At the resurrection of the dead, at the reversal of the curse of sin, at the final downfall and, downfall and defeat of Satan, at the judgment of evil. Go back to what Solomon says. He says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. You see, in the, in the end, Solomon says, it'll go well with those who fear God. In the end, Solomon says, it will not be well with the wicked. This is Solomon's confession of faith. And this is really the confession of faith of the church throughout all the ages. This is the confession of faith Summarized in, in some of the ancient confessions, like the Apostles' Creed, which ends by saying that you and I believe in Jesus Christ who will one day return to judge the living and the dead. You see, this must be our confession of faith if you and I are to navigate the world of Ecclesiastes in. Our world is full of questions to which the best answer I can give is, I don't know. The world is full of complexities where on the one hand, you might think this would be the best course of action. And in the very next breath, you might think, oh, this would be the best course of action. Or why, where, where you might stand in the middle and go, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the right thing to do is right here. Solomon's calling us to trust the God who has all the answers. To trust the God who will ultimately unravel all the complexities. You see, it's only those who fear God and who know that it will ultimately go well with those who fear God who will be able to respond to the complexities of life with the wisdom of God because the wise fear God they will strive to do what's right no matter the consequences what did Jesus say do not fear those who can destroy the body Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. Because they fear God, the wise will not desire the praise of other people, but the approval of God. Because they fear God, the wise will live their lives with a view toward one day standing before God. Are you living in light of that day? 
Is your faith not only backward looking, is it forward facing? Is your faith not only propelled by the death and resurrection of Jesus, is your faith compelled, is it pulled along by that coming day of judgment when Christ will return to gather his people unto himself? And each and every one of us will stand before his throne and we will gaze upon the one whose glory, whose majesty, whose beauty surpasses the shining sun. Solomon's essentially saying there are only two paths. That's you. There's the path of the God-fearer. He talked about that last week, about how fearing the Lord means coming into relationship with this great and glorious creator and redeemer and coming to find that knowing him brings us to this place of great trembling joy and delight where we want nothing more and nothing less than to please him with our whole life. And then there's the life of the person who has essentially no regard for now, now, you can say that you believe that. You can say that you trust the Lord. But at the end of the day, the God-fearer is the one who lives like they trust God. There is a uh, apologist who uses, a Christian apologist who defends the faith, who uses this illustration. He says, Imagine going to Niagara Falls every day for a week and watching a guy walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls with a wheelbarrow in front of him. Day after day, you stand at the edge of the falls. The water is roaring. You can't even hear the sound of your own voice, but you watch this guy. Day after day, walk across the tightrope with an empty wheelbarrow in front of them. And then surprisingly, after you've watched him do that for about five days, you get there on the sixth day and you're waiting for him to do his trick again and this person comes up and stands beside you and it happens to be him. And uh, you don't know it at first. The guy just begins talking and he says, what do, you, what do you think about that guy who's pushing that empty wheelbarrow across the falls every day? It's really cool. Do you think he, do you think he can do it again today? Yeah, 
I do. I've watched them do it five days in a row. So, 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 you, so you're, you're pretty confident in the fact that he can get from point A to point B without plummeting to his death. Yeah? I've watched him do it enough. Great. I'm that guy. Can I interest you in getting in the wheelbarrow today? That is faith. That's the difference between the kind of faith that's here and the kind of faith that's here. Trusting Jesus means getting in the wheelbarrow. Make sense? That's what it means to be a God-fearer. That's what it means to be someone who has entrusted themselves to Christ, who's living in such a way that you and I believe Jesus knows how to do life better than we do. That's what it means. So do you have that kind of relationship with him? Not, did you make a decision years ago? Do you have that kind of relationship with him? That's what I want to invite you to consider this morning. Let me go ahead and invite the worship team back up. And um, we'll transition to a time of response this morning. I want you to think. Think with me this morning about whether or not you're living in light of the final day. The day when you and I will all stand before God. And we will all give an account of how we've lived our lives. You see, living in light of that day doesn't only affect your future, it affects your present, or it should. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much this morning for your word. Father, your word highlights for us the kind of world that we live in. Lord, it is a complex and challenging world. Lord, it is a world groaning under the curse of sin. It is a world where we approach complexities and questions, seeking out answers and seeking out ways and means to navigate the world. Many times forgetting that all of this complexity is intended to lead us home to you. So God, this morning, I pray that if there's anyone here who came into this place looking for answers to questions, that they would be able to lay the questions down and embrace a life of faith. Not a life of recognition, but re resignation, but the kind of life that recognizes, God, you are in control of everything, and you are so good and gracious and kind. You are so glorious and majestic. I can trust you today. I can trust you. God, help that person embrace you. And Lord, help your people to grow in wisdom today. To be reminded that what we need most is not answers, but what we need most is you. And to live in light of who you are, what you've done, and what you will do. 
as we sing now and confess all of these things together and declare yes and amen to the promises we have in Christ. Father, would you firm up our faith, my faith, and would you leave us encouraged in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'd like someone to pray with you this morning.